I invite you to turn again in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel to chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 27. We'll read and study through chapter 10, verse 16. Last time we came to the book of 1 Samuel, we studied an interesting story, and it was a story about the providence of God. And as we read it, uniquely we read about this young man, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, a man named Saul who was about his father's business, and it was really simple business, in fact. He was chasing after some donkeys that belonged to his father. But in the providence of the Lord, he would meet the prophet, who was the man who served as judge of Israel, Samuel. And it was this man that the Lord revealed to Samuel that Saul would be the king over Israel, the king that they were requesting, and frankly the king that they needed to restrain them in their worldliness. And so we pick up in verse 27, and we're going to continue to study this and to Consider the things that the Lord did in the life of Samuel and specifically the signs that he gave him for faith and the task that he laid before him. So let's read the word of God. 1 Samuel chapter 9. We will read verse 27 through chapter 10, verse 16. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he is passed on, stop there, or stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of Israel, or the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be a prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up uh, to you uh, shall go on from, excuse me, three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. They will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place uh, with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. And the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, Do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, 
I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied amongst, among them. And when all, who knew him previously, when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken. He did not tell him anything. Thus far the word of the Lord, the God of heaven. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we consider this ancient history of your people, this ancient history even of the church, we pray that you would help us to understand you in your unchangeable and eternal character. Lord, help us to be submissive to your word, O Lord, to have minds that are awake, and to be a people who would learn to be more like you through the mercies and the providences that you give. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If God calls us to himself, he will establish us. He will help us. And ultimately, he will do what he wants through us. And these are truths because God is all-powerful. He is the one who created us and brought us up from uh, the dust of the earth, breathing into our nostrils the breath of life. And it is a bit of a staggering thing that there is something, some being with this sort of power, with this sort of authority. But it is the truth nonetheless. And I think that whenever people experience the calling of God, it can be startling and it can be just frankly frightening. To simply hear the Lord or to feel the call or for the people of God to express the sincerity of their seeing the call that God has put on your life can sort of cut you to the heart. And great men, strong men, uh, have recoiled at the call of God. They've said, I can't do it. They've been terrified. They've lost sleep. They've run from God and they felt the weight of their weakness. But here's the reality that when we are weak, even too weak to follow where the Lord would require us to go, if our faith is quivering, incomplete or broken, the Lord our God will give us strength so that we wouldn't be overwhelmed by weak faith and fall into disobedience. The Lord does not call the equipped, He equips the called. Let me say that again. The Lord does not call the equipped. He equips the called. And as tonight we read the Lord's calling and preparing of Saul to be the first king of Israel. 
We had already previously read about Saul, this truly and significantly, at least according to men, random man, this son of Kish, who is of the least of the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and of the least of the clans of Benjamin. He's, yes, tall, he's handsome, he's different looking than all of the other men of the people of Israel, but he's frankly not yet royal. Uh, Up until this point, there's nothing about Saul other than his persistence and his faithfulness to the need of his father that would commit to us that he's anything more than a donkey farmer and an obedient child. Yet God called him. He called Saul. And, you know, if you have any sense of the Bible and its narrative, you know that much of what Saul does, it ends in failure. It's, It's a big mess. And the sin of Saul consumes him, especially late in his life and in the course of his kingship. Nonetheless, he is the Lord's anointed. He's God's man for the moment that God has called him. Even great King David sees this, and he refrains from laying a finger on Saul. He sees that he's God's man. And uh, this evening, as we read about him and his calling, we're going to specifically read about this series of signs that God does to and through Saul to prepare him to be the king of his people. And so the three things I want us to consider uh, from the passage, and I just want you to know, we're going to go back and forth, so I'm not going to give you verses with these. Just have your Bibles open is what I want to tell you. Three things I want us to see is, firstly, how signs affect us. How signs affect us as people, like yourself. Secondly, I want us to see how signs affect others that look upon you. And then thirdly, I want us to see how signs demand faith if they're to be effective. How signs demand faith. In verse 27, we begin this section about how signs affect us. And we have this interaction, this conversation between Samuel and Saul. And Samuel, more than having a conversation, sort of commands him or tells him what to do. He says to Saul... Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he is passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. And so the picture is pretty simple. They're leaving the city. They're going together. It's Samuel, the judge, who's also a priest, and in this case, a prophet. And then you have Saul, this man that the Lord has called to the ears of Samuel. And then there's the servant, This is simple enough. I mean, Samuel wants to do something. He wants to tell him specifically the plan of God for his life. But he's being private about it. Now, the text doesn't tell us why he's private about it. Um, Maybe it's the case that, you know, he doesn't need another mouth to stand there and say, Hey, Saul, this guy's crazy. Or to say, Samuel, you've got it all wrong. Saul is a mess. He's a donkey chaser and a failed one. He's not the guy for the job. It does, we don't know. The passage doesn't tell us. But nonetheless, there's a division. And he says, send your servant on ahead. So he goes as he's told to do. And he stops. And in chapter 10, we immediately come into the reality of Samuel's obedience to the command. Or Saul's obedience to the command of Samuel. And in 10.1, this first sign is described. Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him. 
That's the sign. It's the anointing with oil. This is something we're familiar with. Certainly so. This remains in the uh, ceremonies and services for the coronation and the installation of monarchs. uh, Even in our present era. But the oil being poured over the head. It's a sign. And it's this sign where we get the language of messiahship from. Do you know that? Messiahship or Christ. It literally means the anointed one. That's what it means. And this is a spiritual sign. And also the kiss. That shouldn't be overlooked. Uh, That this is not simply that he's going to be a guy set apart, having this uh, oil placed upon his head. Uh, This this feeling that he has come over uh, one of the most specifically sensory parts of his body. But he's kissed. And it shows this, this beautiful symbol of the sincerity of God and the love of God to him that he would do this. But then Samuel goes on and expresses what the sign is and how it ought to affect Saul. He says after he kisses him, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people? Again, I want to point out something to you. I don't know what your translation says, but in any case, the Hebrew doesn't use the word for king. He uses the word prince or leader. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lesser leader, a second tier leader. That's the depiction. It's not the word melech where we get um, Melchizedek. That mel portion of Melchizedek is king of righteousness. It's not that word. Instead, it's a word that should intend for our minds, our hearts, and Saul's ears to hear that he's a ruler under God. He's a ruler under God. Has not God anointed you, the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel. And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. It's this prophecy right in the midst of it. That he hears, he doesn't only see, but he he hears. And the sign is there connected with the word of the Lord. Because otherwise, the sign could mean ten different things, couldn't it? I mean, Saul could make up whatever he felt like it meant. It's as if a sacrament is, is just done and people are all looking on. And, you know, you just go on and you decide whatever spirituality you will have. That's not how it is here. That's not how it is. It's explained. The sign is administered with the word. But the three things that I want to point out to you that he specifically says this sign should mean for you. Things that ought to be evident. Firstly, is that it is a sign that God has called him to be prince or a leader of God's people. Did you catch that turn of phrase there uh, in the verse? He says he has anointed you to be prince over his people, not your people, his people. And there again, there's the hand of God keeping Israel and establishing Samuel as a servant. The first thing that God makes the sign over him, this anointing, that he would know that he is called to be a prince by God. The second meaning is that it is a sign that God has called him to reign over them. To reign over them. Earlier in chapter 9, what we read was that God said, this will be the man to restrain Israel. And this here is connected. This portion is connected with that. This idea of reign or ruling. 
It's a strong word, and it's really the hand of a ruler keeping them from their worst. It's as if Samuel is saying, this is to be to you a symbol of authority over the people of Israel when you have to keep them from their sins. You're going to have to reign over them. You're going to have to rule as a ruler. And it may be unpleasant. Nonetheless, this is for you to know that you're not to neglect it. And also that you have the authority to execute this rule. And then there's a third meaning of it. And it's that this is to be a sign that God has called him, Saul, to save the people of Israel from their enemies that surround their borders. He's to be military and to be a defender, a king who wages warfare righteously. To save them from the hand of somebody that would be an oppressor. So that they don't become like the nations. They don't become worldly. They don't uh, become a people overwhelmed by an army and taken into another nation and just eradicated by integration. They're to be a particular, a peculiar people, a people unto the Lord. These things, that God has called him to be a prince, that he's given him authority to reign, that he has called him to save them from their enemies. These are huge. And really, they are wonderfully in order. Uh, It it really gives you the sense of it all. That, That he's to be under God as a ruler. That he's to extend his hand for the keeping of the people and to defend them from others that would harm them. It's wonderful. But you may ask the question, why is Samuel saying all this? Well, it's because the, sh- the sign itself should have caught his attention. I mean, I don't know about you, um, but if I were Saul in search of donkeys come into the city uh, after the probing and the prodding of a servant... There would have never in a million years been any expectation that I would go in in search of donkeys and come out the king of Israel. That's what's happened to him. It's almost one of those things that, at least if it's me, I'm thinking, what sort of weird dream am I having? It's not credible almost. And it's frightening. It's, it's a call that really, if Saul perceives it, it's, it, it ought to be too big for him. It ought to be... Well, it ought to be a little bit frightening. And this is Samuel taking and he's saying, you know, when we had that moment where I poured oil on your head and I kissed you, you're to remember that every single moment of every single day, that this is not only that you're set apart, but that you're loved by God. And this is an evidence of his love to you so that you can press on with these real and spiritual duties. It's as if he's saying to him, you are God's man Now, he's given you a job to do. And why? Again, why is this necessary? Is it a a strange context? I think it's more than that. You know, we still do this with rulers. We do this with a change of command and military uh, organizations and so on and so forth. We do this in the church. Uh, Well, why is this sort of thing necessary? Well, the signs, the ceremonies, all of these sorts of things, they have the intention of pressing these things to our minds and to our hearts through external realities. There are, uh, as it were, symbols that are physical and you can touch uh, that have spiritual meaning. There is the sign and the thing that it stands for that is spiritual. 
And I think the place that this really comes into its own is, well, when you're a leader or when you're living after the calling of God, whatever that is, whether it's to be the king of Israel or to be a shoe cobbler for Christ, it doesn't really matter. But if you're doing what God wants you to do and you're in this world that's fallen, you're going to have enemies, whether it's uh, people who despise you for your faith, whether it's people that despise the calling that the Lord has put on your life, whether it's people that hate your God and hate you because you belong to your God, or whether it's the weakness of the flesh that simply says, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired of these people. I'm tired of this place. I'm tired of this labor. I could do a million other things. When the hard times come, there is not only the sense that something happened to you in the past, but that it chases you and it pursues you. And every time Samuel would dip his, his bread into oil or refresh his brow with oil, or every time somebody would embrace him and every time someone would kiss him, every single time it would shout in his ears, you're God's man now. You're about his work. He's given you a job to do and strengthen him for the time and for the work and for the call of God. Now, you may say, OK, Pastor, we get that and we hear the language and we probably feel like you're going to go and talk about something else now. And I am. Where do we meet this? You and I are not Saul. We're not called to establish an earthly kingdom. We know that there is a king coming, not one that's going to chase after donkeys, but one who's going to ride donkeys. That kingdom is set. The king is coming. He's on his throne. We know that. However, the Lord gives you and me calling. Whether it's a calling to some sort of office or not, the simplest and most specific thing I want to point out to you is that the Lord gives us a calling to be His children. To be His children. To be redeemed. The gospel constantly calls to us and applies the, the moral and spiritual pressure of professing faith in Jesus Christ. And living after Him and walking as a new creation. And so what sign has the Lord given to us for that calling? That we are ill-equipped for. And the calling to be holy as our God in heaven is holy. What's that sign? Well, in the first place, it's baptism. It's baptism. And it's common, isn't it? Oh, it certainly is. It's water. It's water. You and I can't escape water. It's a fact of life. I forget the uh, ratio that our bodies are made up of, but it's significant. Even at the moment, it's hot enough. I can feel the water that I'm made up of. And I'm reminded I'm not my own. If I drink anything, it's going to have the wonderful quenching attribute of water. If I go outdoors and it's not a summer like it is at the moment and it rains and it hits my head, I'm reminded I'm not my own. I'm God's man. I belong to him. He's called me to something higher, something better, and something spiritual. If I bathe my body, I'm reminded, I'm constantly reminded. A sign has a purpose for us, and that is to strengthen us in faith. But I want to tell you that the sign is not alone. It's administered by the Word. You ever wondered why I stand at the baptismal font and we take some time with baptism? Because it's not enough just for you to see an external act. The Word of God gives it authority. Otherwise, that's nothing. Sign and the Word. That's the right administration. Because it's not just what you have poured on your head or something that happens to you. But it is the authority of God weighing on the heart. Not just for you to make it up, 
but for the Lord to give you his ordained reason and purpose for that to happen to you and for your life. But there's also the Lord's Supper. It too is a sign. It too has for us something that we see and we're reminded of the truth of our inclusion into Jesus Christ and our invitation to receive him. How his body was broken for us, how his blood was poured out, and how we freely can take it just as if we reach a hand forward and take a piece of bread and take the cup and take it in by faith in him. It's simple, it's wonderful, and it's intended for us to strengthen us. Strengthen us for what? To live after Christ. To live whenever the attacks come, to live when the temptation comes, and to simply say no, and to have resolve and strengthen our calling to live faithfully. And you may say, well, you know, the Lord gives us that. And I say, yes, the Lord does give us that. And then you say, well, he gives us the word. And I say, of course he does. We have 66 books, but he knows your weaknesses. He knows my weakness. He knows that I need to be entertained, that the eyes were made to see a thing and the tongue was made to taste, the hand to feel. And so this is yet another means that the Lord presses his mercy and grace upon us to help us because we're weak creatures. The sign affecting us. Secondly, how does the sign affect others? Because we've only barely gotten into this section. Well, you see, Samuel sets him off after he anoints him and kisses him on this tour. And it's strange. <laughs> uh, as I study it and I look at it in the original language, I sort of go back and forth about some of my opinion of this. Um, but I'm going to do my best to describe what's going on. In verse 2, immediately after he's, um, after he's anointed and kissed, uh, he is sent to Rachel's tomb. Of course, you know who Rachel is. She is the mother of the household of Israel, as it were. But there's some specific reference here, okay? Uh, she's buried after what? What happens to Rachel that causes her to die? Do you remember? She gave birth to Benjamin. She gave birth to Benjamin. She even holds the baby in her arms and she calls him by a different name. And then her husband changes to son of my right hand. She calls him son of my anguish. Ben-Oni, if you look in the book of Genesis. And this has real relevance, doesn't it, uh, to Saul? It's as if he's being sent in the first stop of his tour to be reminded of who he is. He's standing at the tomb of the matriarch of his household, and he's remembering the specific time where his house was begun. And Saul says something interesting, or Samuel says something interesting to him. He says, There he's going to meet two men. And these men are going to tell him, uh, you know, your father was uh, sent you in search of the donkeys. The donkeys have been found. And now your father's more concerned about you. And that's been the concern of the heart of Saul the whole time. Uh, that he not stay away so long that it causes his father anxiety. And when I think about these men, they really do this work of prophecy. Um, it's tough to say they're not called prophets here, but whenever they speak to him, I struggle to understand if they know him in the text. If they're aware of who he is. doesn't seem to be. Uh, but nonetheless, they tell him this thing. And so uh, you have, as it were, this crossroads put in front of, um, of Saul. Your father's really worried about you. That's what they say in essence. And then immediately, 
Samuel says, but then go about God's work, go about his business. And he immediately sends him on and he goes from there to what's called the Oak of Tabor. And you may know it by another name, the Oak of Mamre. Now, the Bible scholars in the room, you obviously know where that is. The Oak of Tabor, the Oak of Mamre, you recall. This is where Abraham settled and he made an altar to the Lord and worshipped there when he came into the land of promise. And here, he's told that he's going to meet three men who give to him a tribute. And that there will be one man who holds three goats, one man who holds three loaves of bread, and one guy with a flask of wine. And it's very specific, so that whenever Saul goes and sees uh, these men, he will know. Okay, he'll understand this is of the Lord. And that uh, one of the men, the man who has the bread, will give to him two loaves as tribute. This is a sign of the Lord saying simply this, you will not only be a man of the tribe of Benjamin, you will be a man of the people of Israel. Not only at the very beginning of your life, at the time where Benjamin came into the world, but you'll be where Abraham, the father of the household of faith, established the people of Israel. That's where you're going to be, and the people of Israel are going to give to you. They're going to care for you. They're going to respond and respect you. And then he goes on and immediately tells him, don't just stay there. Don't hang out near the altar and be a spiritual tourist like so many are in Israel these days. In verse 5 he says, you need to go to Gibeath Elohim. Gibeath Elohim. And I just think it's interesting. And Some commentators make a whole lot of this. I don't think the Bible lets us. Uh, we're just told in passing by Samuel that there will be uh, Gibeath Elohim, a garrison of Philistines, moves on. Uh, some commentators think that this is to indicate to us uh, that later in the passage where he says, and whatever your hand finds to do, do it. As if that's an implicit command to go and to take on the Philistines. But I just simply think that would be recorded in the word of God. It's just mentioned. And I think if anything, it's foreshadowing because who is Saul going to go up against but the neighbor that is the Philistines, right? The neighbor that is the Philistines. But he immediately goes on from mentioning this garrison of Philistine soldiers. And we're told that he meets a group of prophets as he enters the city, coming down from the high place, playing musical instruments of all sorts, and prophesying You try to get your head around this one. Uh, In the ancient world and in the biblical world, on high places, they would set up altars, as the name implies, on top of hills. And they would sacrifice to the Lord there, and they would pray there, and they would worship the Lord there. It's, you know, makes sense. You want to get to God, you go to a high place, and you are at least a little elevated uh, to the one who is in heaven. But here are these prophets, this band of Men who are set apart to serve the Lord, joyfully playing instruments and prophesying. And when you look at the word, the language of prophecy in the Old Testament, it could just mean preaching. Uh, I mean, that's quite often the case. We're not told of any specific prophecy they make. They, they don't seem to, maybe they do, but it's definitely not recorded in Scripture, that they unpack for Saul all of the details of his coming reign. There doesn't seem to be any of that. They're just, in my opinion, supposed to be understood as men devoted to God. Because something happens uh, and is said to happen uh, to Saul as he sees them that 
the Spirit of God rushed upon him and that he was turned into another man. So what's the point here? We've seen him being a man of his household, a man of his nation. Now he's a man of God. And these are signs and they're public signs. And there are two men at the tomb of Rachel. There are three men at the oak of Tabor. There's a city and a whole troop of prophets playing loudly. Something that you just wouldn't ignore. And when he's overwhelmed and the Spirit rushes upon him, he begins to prophesy and people take note of that sort of thing. Wouldn't you? It's a public sign. And I love in verse 7, you know, these were still in the section where he's telling him what's going to happen, telling him where he's going to go. And in verse 7, he tells him, uh, read it with me. He says, um, now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do for God is with you. And you might say, well, what's that? Well, some of those commentators. I think it's as if he's saying this. Whenever these things happen to you. Just go with it. Just submit to it. When these signs come and these two men say this to you, you hear them, you receive it, and then you get onto the oak of Tabor. And whenever they give you the bread, you receive it joyfully and you just get on with it. You accept it, you receive it. And whenever you see the prophets and you know that it's going to happen, submit yourself to it. These are signs to prepare you and to help you but also to testify to other people. And then in verse 8 he says, and after all these things, you get on to Gilgal. That's where we're going to do the work of actually seeing you installed. That's where you're actually going to become the king before the Lord and before the people of Israel. And that's the big story before, but I want you to see the response. How it affects others, how the signs Uh, are specifically effective. Verse 11, we have the account in verses 11 and 12 of what the people think of all this because it all happens. That's what we're told. Um, uh, That whenever, even when he turned away, that the Lord gave him a new heart. Before I skip on, I need to, I have to touch on this. Um, we'll, We'll come right back to how it affected other people. When he turns his back to leave Samuel and goes about doing this, that, that he said to do, the passage said God gave him a, diff, a new heart, another heart. It sounds a whole lot like New Testament language, doesn't it? It sounds like the redemptive act, the saving, the regeneration, uh, where the heart is taken from a heart of stone and made a heart of flesh. Is that what this means? I don't think so. Um, I don't think so because this is an uncommon term and this is or uncommon phrase in the Old Testament, it's not used to regard what we would consider redemption. Um, Saul doesn't evidence uh, a life of redemptive sanctification, and he's not referred to as redeemed uh, as you go forward in the Bible. So then what does this mean? God gave him another heart. I think that it regards the Lord giving him a desire to do it. He lays on his heart a desire to fulfill the calling. It's very specific, I think. Um, It's the best I can do with that, uh, but as it is. Uh, Verse 11 and 12, let's look again at at how the signs affect other people. Um, It tells us, and when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied, 
this very public thing, with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of that place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. People saw this. These were signs for other people. Of course, yes, they had an effect on Saul. He'd have to be blinded. Well, at least a little bit uh, foolish to not receive anything from all this that's happening to him. But other people saw this. And they simply understood something is different about Saul. Uh, didn't he used to be a donkey farmer and is just a son of Kish, barely to be even named? But now it looks like God has called him. I mean, you know, those prophets, who do they serve? Whose household are they part of? They're part of the household of God. That's who they serve as a father. They're not waiting on a father's inheritance. They are after the inheritance of the God of heaven. And it's as if they're looking on him and this thing that he's doing and seeing the change in him and they're saying... He's a different man. He's a different man. You see, the signs of God that He does in our lives ought to be noticeable in the way we behave. The way we behave. How we hold ourselves to things we say, the things we do. Our baptism ought to mean that we live differently. Not that we were just... Somebody that had water splashed on us and there's just no significance to it at all. But rather, we know that we were baptized. We've been told we were baptized. We recall that we were baptized. And so we live in light of that baptism. We live differently so that when people meet you, they simply say, something different about you. Something's changed. I mean, is, is this the same old John, Betty, uh, Sam... As I used to know, the same old guy that used to say this thing, do this thing, and live this way, it seemed like he was a man mastered by all these things. Who's his master now? See, the signs that the Lord gives to us ought to stand as a testimony. Because for Saul, it certainly did. And why does the Lord do these public things, these public signs, whenever there was this private sign that his servant's not even allowed to see? What's the point? Well, the Lord has taken a man who of himself was not equal to the work and the Lord is equipping him for it so that people would look on him and respond to him and receive him as king. It was for influence. Where am I going at with that? Well, he needed these signs. It was important for him to lead, for him to be credible. And the signs of God, if they have evidences in who we are and the way we live and the changed person that the Lord has called us to be, those things give legitimacy to the testimony we have. Why would anybody listen to anybody on the street? I mean, you don't know somebody. You come up to someone on the street. I mean, you go downtown Stuttgart, somebody's going to try to peddle something to you, whether they're a believer giving you the truth or whether they're uh, you know, a heretic giving you a lie. Or maybe they're just trying to sell you something. They want your money. Uh, You're going to have something. Why would you respect them? Why would it be anything legitimate? Why would you take a second for them? Well, if you're a Christian, why would people listen to you? Because you're changed. You may not be perfect, but you're changed and you have a testimony. I'm not the man I once was. I'm not the man I ought to be. But by the Lord, I'm a man redeemed. 
That's a real testimony. And the signs of the Lord uh, are intended to be testimonies to a watching world. And then thirdly and lastly, I want to show you that, that how signs demand faith. How signs demand faith. We have Saul and he goes and he does all of these things. I think we can make the simple assumption he has to have some modicum of faith if he's going to go and do these things. After all, the Lord has moved upon him, given, given him a new heart, given him some desire to do this. But we come to the close of this section and we have uh, the account of him in verse 14 meeting his uncle. His uncle Abe, uh, as it were. And uh, when he comes to his uncle, um, there's this uh, interaction between them. And I think it's a little perplexing. I mean, we've already had Saul being approached by two men who seem to have some sense of what he's doing. And then three men who give him uh, tribute as king. And then we have him prophesying publicly. I mean, people were starting to take note and even having conversations about it. But he gets in front of his uncle in verse 14, and what does he do? Well, he's asked a question, you cowards, where did you go? I mean, this brings the family element into it. and I mean, it's not too much to think that maybe we have a harsh uncle that we're a little bit afraid of. He's got those eyebrows that go really high to, the, you know, to heaven. He's bald-headed and really aggressive looking, you never know. Um, maybe he's a little afraid of his uncle. But he doesn't give him the full story. He gives him part of the story. Look at it. And he says, or responds to him, he says to seek the donkeys. That's what he was doing. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. That's true enough. And then Saul's uncle asked him and presses him, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. That's all he said. That about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Nothing. Now why is he quiet? Is he told to be quiet about this by Samuel? No. Saul does this on his own. He cowers before his uncle and he doesn't act like the man that's been prophesying with a band of musical prophets. He doesn't act like the man that's been anointed As king who's been kissed by one of the judges, he acts like a coward and he shrinks back and he tells his uncle nothing. And so the thing that I want to tell you is this, is that signs only go so far. I can pour a swimming pool of water over your head. I can feed you enough bread until your stomach explodes, until wine comes out your ears. But if these things are not met by faith, they do not result in a changed heart and in a person bold enough to stand for the God of heaven and Jesus Christ, the King. He cowered in front of a family member for seemingly no reason. We can make all sorts of guesses. Maybe Saul thought his uncle wanted to take his inheritance, all these sorts of things. But the Bible just doesn't give us that. It's just this... Well, it's this little peek into the life and the heart of the man Saul about his weaknesses. About the things that are going to drive his heart, his concern for the thoughts of other men. Rather than simply owning the reality of the signs as they shouted at him, you are now God's man. Who's his father? God's the one from whom he takes orders. 
Signs demand faith. Apart from faith, they show things, they tell truths, but they haven't the power to change us unless we receive the spiritual promise that they hold out to us by faith. And so I want to press you, friends, every time we come each month when we have baptisms, look on even if you're not the one being baptized and do yourself the favor to listen and act as if in your mind and in your soul, you're the one there. You're the one receiving the baptism afresh and cling to Christ by faith. Every time it rains, cling to Christ by faith. Every time you're thirsty and you take the quenching drink, Cling to Christ by faith. Live what you're supposed to live. Improve your baptism by faith. Every time you sit and you're filled with a meal, think on the broken body and the poured out blood of Christ and cling to Him by faith. Every time wine gladdens your heart at the end of a long day, think of Christ who refreshes and restores your soul and cling to Him by faith. Apart from it, all of it is just a big show with wonderful meaning, but no power to change you and to make you the person that you are to be. And that's a child of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures. Oh Lord, how we can see uh, the wonderful testimony of the way you handle uh, your creatures, your people. Even men who are not great, who are made to be great men, kings over Israel. Father, we ask that you would help us to be your people. Oh Lord, that you would be our God, that Lord, that Lord, we wouldn't squander the means that you've given to us for our strength and for the growth and, and the progress of our own faith. Oh Father, we ask that you would help us to stand strong, Lord, before a watching world and to testify Uh, that we are a changed people, that we are redeemed, and that you are a God of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.